All right. Wow, isn't that awesome? Woo! Be able to see a build in about three hours, 180 something people put that together. And the coolest thing, too, is that the, the home was for a family that some of our people knew. And so they were able to really just embrace them with so much love. And it was just a beautiful, beautiful time. And prayerfully, like Pastor Charles just mentioned, we'll be able to do that in Norwalk hopefully next year. But uh, hey, it's great to be with you all this morning. Uh, here at the at the chapel in Norwalk, uh, we are going through the book of John. We've been kind of moving through this over the last 19 weeks, ever since Easter. And we are on John chapter 19. And this is where we're looking at how John records Jesus' journey to the cross. Jesus' journey to the cross. And so we want to experience this really in its fullest, fullest way possible, which is why today is going to look a little different than a lot of Sunday mornings. You see, throughout our service today, we're going to walk through the entire chapter 19. And along the way, we're going to weave in different observations and lessons from the chapter, along with singing through and reflecting upon the lyrics to a song that really means a lot to me and probably to many of you as well. And that is how deep the Father's love for us. The song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And we hope that today will help us to really grasp even a little bit of the incredible, amazing sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf because of his unconditional love for each and every one of us. After all, this is not something that we just remember on a good Friday. You know, we always celebrate the crucifixion on a good Friday, which is so important. But this is something that we can reflect upon even today at the end of August as we're moving and journeying through the book of John. So our first reading today is John 19, verses 1 through 16. Then Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. The soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put a purple robe on him. Hail, King of the Jews, they mocked as they slapped him across the face. Pilate went outside again and said to the people, I am going to bring him out to you now, but understand clearly that I find him not guilty. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said, Look, here is the man. When they saw him, the leading priests and temple guards began shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! Take him yourselves and crucify him, Pilate said. I find him not guilty. The Jewish leaders replied, By our law, he ought to die because he called himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was more frightened than ever. He took Jesus back into the headquarters again and asked him, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. Why don't you talk to me? Pilate demanded. Don't you realize that I have the power to release you or crucify you? Then Jesus said, You would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. 
So the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Then Pilate tried to release him, but the Jewish leaders shouted, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. When they said this, Pilate brought Jesus out to them again. Then Pilate sat down on the judgment seat on the platform that is called the stone pavement. In Hebrew, Gabbatha. It was now about noon on the day of preparation for the Passover. And Pilate said to the people, look, here is your king. Away with him, they yelled, away with him, crucify him. What? Crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the leading priest shouted back. Then Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus away. It's hard to imagine, really, this horrific type of a scene, isn't it? Jesus was ordered to be beaten as if he was the worst of the worst criminals. If that wasn't already bad enough, they further humiliated him by shoving a crown of thorns right on his head, by placing then a purple robe on his back, and then sarcastically declaring, Hail, King of the Jews. Hail, King of the Jews. You see, Jesus' title as the King of the Jews goes all the way back to his birth when the wise men referred to him in this way. Some interpreted this to mean that Jesus would eventually become uh, a political king and rule as some type of leader of his people. However, the title was meant to declare that Jesus would be the Messiah, the anointed one, the spiritual king, the promised one who would be the Lord and Savior of the world, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. But the Jews, Jesus' very own people, never accepted him as such, which is why they mocked him, spat upon him, Rather than worshiping him, rather than kneeling down and declaring that he was truly king. It seems like it really couldn't get any worse than this until something happened that no one, not even Pilate himself, could have anticipated in John 19.6. When they saw him, the, leader, the leading priests and the temple guards began shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Death by crucifixion was supposed to be reserved for those who had done horrific, heinous-type crimes. But according to the Jewish law, it also could be leveled upon someone who committed blasphemy in their eyes. And of course, the Jewish leaders had been wanting to kill Jesus. They wanted to get rid of Jesus at all Cost because of his claim that he was God. We know that in John chapter 10, verse 30, when Jesus said, I and the Father are one, he was claiming to be God in the flesh. But instead of doing what is right, instead of letting Jesus go for doing absolutely nothing wrong, Pilate succumbs to public pressure and he looks out for himself. 
We do that too, don't we? Many a times we succumb to the peer pressure, the public pressure, and we look out for ourselves. This is what it said in 15 and 16. Check it out. Away with him, they yelled. Away with him. Crucify him. What? Crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the leading priest shouted back. Then Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus away. Carrying the cross by himself, he went to the place called Place of the Skull, in Hebrew Golgotha, and there they nailed him to the cross. Two others were crucified with him, one on either side with Jesus between them. And Pilate posted a sign on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek so that many people could read it. Then the leading priests objected and said to Pilate, change it from the king of the Jews to he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, no, what I have written, I have written. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. They also took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, well, rather than tearing it apart, let's throw dice for it. This fulfills the scripture that says they divided my garments among themselves and threw dice for my clothing. So this is what they did. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to his disciple, Here's your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her 
into his home. I want you to notice two important things that happen during this particular scene. First, when John writes about the soldiers dividing up Jesus' clothes, he makes sure to point out that there is something, something much bigger that's happening here. And this is what he writes. When Jesus saw his mother standing there, Beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. Need to back that up one. Went a little too far. It's supposed to be 1924. This fulfilled the scripture that says, They divided my garments among themselves, threw dice for my clothing. The phrase, this fulfilled the scripture, this indicates That what just happened was the completion of something that was prophesied. Something, in other words, that was predicted about the Messiah from the Jewish scriptures. Jesus fulfills numerous, numerous scriptures all throughout his ministry. Over 300 prophecies that is fulfilled, especially when it gets to the end of his life. D.A. Carson, is this what he says, All of the details of the Messiah's life, ministry, death, and exaltation are in conformity with the Father's plan. In other words, the what is happening to Jesus is absolutely gut-wrenching. It's absolutely horrific in all aspects in that particular moment. But God has had a plan. God has had a plan from the beginning to somehow, some way, use his suffering for our good and his glory. To use his suffering for our good, his glory. The second thing that I want you to notice is that Joe, Jesus is experiencing this, this unspeakable type of pain. He still is able to show tremendous care, concern. For his mother, who is also experiencing unspeakable amount of pain. Any of us that are parents, when we see our children going through pain, in many ways that hurts us even more deeply than if it were happening to ourselves. It says this, when Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple that he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. I love the words that say that Jesus saw his mother. In other words, he notices her. Even as he's dying unspeakable death on the cross, he still notices the pain that his mother is going through. And he makes sure that she's going to be okay in the end. When I think about this scene, I can't help but think about how Jesus also notices our struggles. Jesus notices our pain. He cares for us. 
by paying attention to exactly what we're going through. Every single detail of the pain that you're enduring, he notices that. And he also gives us a family, a family of Christ followers that want to put their arms around you, that want to be able to be there for you, to care for you in the midst of your pain, in the midst of whatever that valley of darkness may be. A family of believers. You see, Jesus, he sees you. He sees everything about you. And he cares for you. Right where you are. Right where you are. Let's reflect on these words together. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished and that to fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked the sponge in it and put it on a hyssop branch and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. When we look at all of the Gospels together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see that Jesus utters seven different phrases from the cross. The one that seems maybe just a little bit odd, maybe a little bit out of place perhaps, is what John records in verse 28. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished, and to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. When Jesus expresses his thirst, it tells us two very important things. Number one, Jesus thirsts just like we thirst. Jesus thirsts just like we thirst. You see, when we're thirsty, what do we want? We want something to drink, right? We want some, some water, some coffee, something to drink because we're thirsty, because we are human. That is how our bodies are made. We're made up of mostly water, right? So we need to have some type of water in us. Same is true with Jesus. When he's expressing his thirst, this is his humanity. He's essentially saying that I am like you. I am like you. 
in every type of way. I am, I'm fully man. I'm fully God, though. Jesus can relate to us, and we can relate to him. He experiences thirst. He experiences pain. He experiences loneliness. He experiences grief, just like all of us, just like all of us. Second thing is that Jesus thirsts so that we don't have to, so that we don't have to thirst. Earlier in John 4, you may remember that Jesus is offering the woman at the well, what? Living water, right? Living water, and she's so excited, and she jumps for joy because of her excitement. You see, Jesus offers living water because our souls, our souls, to the very depths of who we are, are oftentimes parched. They're parched. They're parched because we look to things like people and sex and money and notoriety and success and other things to somehow, some way to fulfill us. But it leaves us empty. It leaves us parched within our souls. When Jesus expresses his thirst, he's given what? He's given Sour wine, gall, it's called. It would have been absolutely disgusting when you're that thirsty and you're given something like that, almost mocking him in essence. It represents, though, every disgusting type of drink that we go to in order to hopefully relieve our thirst. In doing this for us, Jesus offers us the living water of himself, which never dries up. It never dries up in order to give us the soul satisfaction that we need to be able to experience eternal life, real life, abundant life through faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. We know that this is true because of Jesus' last words. He would speak before his death says this, when Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In the Greco-Roman world, the word tetelestai was stamped. It was stamped on receipts indicating that the bill was paid in full. This same word, Tetelestai, is found. It is the final word that Jesus spoke before he took his last breath on the cross. The meaning, in actuality, is twofold. You see, from the beginning of Genesis until that very moment in time, everything that will be fulfilled in the Messiah is now complete. It's finished for good. And it also means that our sin and our death has been stamped. It's been stamped with, it has been paid in full. Paid in full. No need to try to earn God's love, for God's love has been earned on your behalf. For too many years, I tried to earn God's love. It cannot be earned. It's already been earned on God's behalf. 
There's no need to try to tip the scale like all the other religions try to do. To tip the scale in your favor. For now you have found favor with God through Jesus Christ. That's where you have found the favor. Through Jesus himself. There's no need to have to worry and be anxious and fret if you've been good enough to somehow, way, earn heaven someday because your place in eternity has already been stamped with his guarantee. We don't have to worry anymore. It's been stamped, paid in full, the guarantee for all of us that have faith in Jesus Christ. It was the day of preparation, and the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there the next day, which was the Sabbath, and a very special Sabbath, because it was Passover week. So they asked Pilate to hasten their death by ordering that their legs be broken. Then their bodies could be taken down. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. So they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water flowed out. This report is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. He speaks the truth so that you also may continue to believe. These things happened in fulfillment of the scriptures that say, not one of his bones will be broken, and they will look on the one they have pierced. Afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices in long sheets of linen cloth. The place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. And so, because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, 
they laid Jesus there. After Jesus dies, John tells us that Jesus was pierced in his side by a spear. When this happened, both blood and water came pouring out, signifying that Jesus was indeed dead. Right after John tells us this, he follows up with really some interesting words from verse 35. It says, this report is from an eyewitness given an accurate account. He speaks the truth so that you also may continue to believe. There are a few thoughts on who maybe this eyewitness is. Some scholars say that it's probably John himself. Others believe that maybe it was some type of editorial comment after the fact by someone who was there. Some even say that it could have been possibly the Roman soldier himself that actually pierced Jesus' side. Regardless, what we know is that John wants us to know that there were actually witnesses who could corroborate this story. Most importantly, he includes the detail of witnesses actually being there so that those who would read the story and hear what Jesus did would actually believe, that they would believe in the hearts of who he was, who he is. It goes without saying that, unfortunately, there are a lot of people today that don't believe who Jesus is. From intellectual doubts to maybe problems with the church to not seeing a need for God in their lives or possibly because they've been through so much pain and so much hurt and they can't grapple with the fact that how could a loving God still love me? People have all kinds of different reasons for not believing. Maybe some of you today have some of those types of reasons. And while I totally understand why people may reject God, I sometimes wonder if maybe people reject God because they haven't really discovered, though, the God that John is writing all about. I love how Tim Keller puts it right here. Describe the God you've rejected. Describe the God you don't believe in. Maybe I don't believe in that God either. You see, maybe we're believing in the wrong type of God instead of believing in the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ himself. See, John isn't writing his gospel in order to try to somehow force or somehow convince someone into believing. He isn't here to argue. Instead, all he's doing is he's writing down what he and other witnesses saw firsthand all about Jesus. That he saw with his own eyes that Jesus was God in the flesh. That Jesus performed miracles upon miracles as a sign that God is real and that his kingdom has come to this earth. That Jesus fulfilled the promises in the scriptures that he and his ancestors have been longing to see fulfilled for hundreds upon hundreds of years. That he watched at Jesus was arrested, and Jesus was beaten, and Jesus was crucified on the cross. He watched that. He was astonished, though, 
He was astonished when Jesus did what he said he would do. He did what he said he would do and he arose from the grave and he defeated death forever and ever and he's alive. He's alive. And he's alive today. The living God of the universe. People, he's real and he wants to be alive in our hearts. John discovered firsthand how Jesus changed his life. And he changed countless others. He changed my life. He changed many of your lives. And he invites us, all of us, every one of us, to read about him, to experience him, discover this truth for ourselves. John's hope, my hope, is that you would do that. And we would discover who God is in the person of Jesus Christ. That he's alive. He wants to be alive in our lives. Let us now stand. We're going to sing together the end of how deep the Father's love for us. I will not boast in anything. I will not boast in
Dear Lord God, we do come before you here, Lord. We say how much we love you and praise you. We thank you that our hope is found in you, in you alone. Thank you that you paid that ransom for each and every one of us. It's paid in full. Lord, I pray that we would walk out of here with faith in you. Our relationship would grow stronger. We'd take one more step closer and closer to you, trusting in you with our lives. Lord, thank you that you are so real, that you love us so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless each and every one of you. Have a wonderful week.